Hello, and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, politics, and policies that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. I'm the comms guy here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and my co-host is Derek Cohen. As always, he's the vice president of policy, so he's the one who actually knows more about these things, so we'll get his take on the legislative session here in a little bit. How's it going, Derek? Can't complain. Can't complain. It's actually... uh not uh, 80 degrees outside anymore, a little more uh, typical for late January. But there is a buzz in the air. There's certainly a buzz. Things are, things are, feel like they're moving, the, the up and down Congress, there's, uh, you know, all the members are in town and staff are coming out and the, you know, the, the lunch places are filled with folks. So there definitely is a buzz in Austin. People excited about uh, legislative session starts. So right when everybody gets excited, they recess for the week and they all go home. <laughs> What was that about? Well, again, we're still in that we're still in that sixty day window where they're constitutionally prohibited from uh, from substantively advancing legislation. Also, just want to point out that thus far, only the Senate seems to have uh, uh, actually assigned committees. I don't believe that the House's preferences were due uh, until this week. And that being said, we're still probably a couple weeks out from when we're going to find out who's doing what so it's a it's a lot of hurry up and wait and happy Mm -hmm. hours and lunches and that kind of thing well i wouldn't know about that okay (laughs) (laughs) um all right well let's run down what we're going to talk about in the show real quick uh so our audience knows uh later in the show we're going to go in depth on the issue of gender modification of minors a very controversial issue we'll talk about that there's going to be legislation that's going to be filed uh pending legislation that's going to be filed here pretty soon so we'll talk about uh how uh, members are addressing that particular issue uh, for the topics, for our hot topics, we're going to talk about, um, you know, the Texas economy is on fire, apparently. Uh, we got some some news about the Texas economy and talk about what that means. Uh, and then uh, one Democrat in the House has a very interesting idea when it comes to teacher pay and getting uh, uh, teachers a massive raise. So we'll talk about some of the ins and outs of that. Um, but first, I do want to give a shout out. I want to give a shout out particularly to our video team here at, at TPPF, uh, specifically the, the man behind the magic, Jefferson Drexler, who produces this show, uh, uh, which is which is fantastic, but also uh, Ariana Silva, who is it actually makes sure that Jefferson does a really good job. She's kind of our quality control on that, of course. And then and then really the the man behind it all is uh, Stephen Robinson. Uh, he's the head of our of our film uh, department. And so if you haven't checked out our YouTube page, I would ask you to go there to TPPF's YouTube page. We have a tons of really good videos on all kinds of issues. So thank you, Jefferson, uh, for all the good work that you do as well. Another California refugee. Another, yeah, exactly. Another <laughs> California refugee. Refugee. It's not just Chuck uh, Chuck DeVore, but we've got <laughs> lots of them. In fact, we're talking about that in the topics this week. It's part of the reason why our economy is so crazy is because everybody's moving here. Um, a couple other things for housekeeping. We love your feedback. We love your feedback. We're getting a lot of good feedback. We're getting a lot of good constructive criticism of our ability to, to hold this show together. Um, and so we want, we're out in the Twitterverse, both Derek and I are. Uh, you can find me at at Real Beefill, at Real Beefill. So uh, we'll be promoting our you know show and promoting our various podcasts from there. You can give us all your constructive feedback and and uh, and, and good words. But if you have criticism and you want to be a hater, please tag, please tw- tweet at Derek at Cohen at TPPF, Cohen A-T-T-P-P-F. Uh, he says that he told me on good authority that, that the hate uh, really fuels him. 
Yeah, exactly. It's the whole, uh, you know, your booze sustain me, you know, because I've seen what you cheer kind of thing. <laughs> but we do we do really want your feedback. Um, we certainly want your ideas. If you there's certain issues and things like that that you want us to see uh, covered or you have questions about what's going on at the Capitol or going on with particular legislation, we're here to provide that information. You know, we try to come up with topics that we think are, you know, topical in the news, that kind of thing. But if there's something that you kind of want to hear about or want to hear us address, please hit us up on Twitter at Real Beefill and at Cohen at TPPF. Last bit uh, before we get into the show is I do want to talk about next week. We are thrilled. We're going to have our first guest on the show. Uh, not that Derek and I can't hold it together for <laughs> you know for for thirty minutes, but we are super excited. Uh, we announced a couple weeks ago that former Congresswoman Myra Flores is now part of TPPF, and she's out there advocating uh, for these conservative policies for conservative values. She's she takes on a number of different issues, not the least of which are things like parent empowerment, um, and then obviously you know issues at the border. She represented uh, several border communities uh, when she was a congresswoman. She's now here at TPPF. She's going to be in the building uh, next week on Thursday. And so we asked her to join us. So she's going to have super hot takes on all kinds of issues. What do you think about Myra? Oh, I'm looking very, I'm looking forward to it. She, her perspective, not only from her time in D.C., but from her time uh, you know, down in the Valley, is going to be one that's critically informative to the the discussions that we're going to have going forward, not least of which on the issues of immigration and border security. So looking forward to that. So we'll change up the uh, the way we do the show a little bit next week and basically just give her the floor because she's, she's awesome. We're looking forward to talking to her. So now, of course, the reason you're all here is to find out what's going on at the Capitol. Uh, our first segment uh, of every show is, of course, to hand it over to Derek and Derek's ledge land, what I like to call his ledge land update. So tell us what's going on this week at the Capitol. Well, you know, you, you said it was a little hurry, hurry up and wait. It's actually, we're, we're starting to see some activity there. In fact, we actually had a committee hearing uh, uh, yesterday, uh, really starting off that whole uh, opening foray into the re-redistricting um, to repass the maps. Uh, that hearing started mm-hmm. yesterday. And then starting next Monday, or this coming Monday, I should say, we're actually going to have our first fi- Senate finance hearing. And so we talked about the budgets getting announced last week. Mm-hmm. Well, we're actually going to start discussing it, and so we're going to start uh, winding their way through. I believe next week they're only going to get through Articles 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. So that's going to get through uh, the general government and uh, health and human services. But that means that Monday following that is going to be Article 3, and that's education. So that's going to be a very, very uh, informative hearing, I'd mm-hmm. say, especially because a lot of the stuff we're talking about here, whether it's parental empowerment, whether it's some of the content in school financing, is a yeah, big one. That, yeah, and that's going to cover all of that. Yeah, and so we're going to see recriminations and criminations, precriminations, <laughs> all that's going to be, uh, yeah, the, not Monday next, but the Monday following. Okay. Um, all right. So, so, so two huge, uh, we obviously, you know, two huge issues, finance and education, that's coming up. Uh, we also had the announced committees, that, which, which yes. you know, for the insiders, for I'm sure that for our audience who follows this kind of stuff, that was a big deal. I mean, you know, there were probably probably not as many surprises as you might think, um, but what was your take on on the committee assignments and how things are shaping up? So you're right. They, they did announce committees in the Senate. Again, I believe today is the due date at Thursday being the due date for uh, preferences in the House. Mm -hmm. So we're still a couple weeks off from from those particular announcements. But in the Senate, you're right. We didn't really see anything uh, that was that was terribly, uh, terribly surprising. There's a lot of folks who, 
you know, like to try to divine the goat entrails on, <laughs> on, on what they come out. So you have to say, if this person's vice chair versus that person, that means that this one tangential policy proposal either now has a, you know, it used to be a 65% chance of passing and now it's 65.3 okay. or something like that. It's, it's, it's such a distal thing. And, you know, I think committee chair, committees and committee chairs are very important, obviously. But I, we, we kind of get in these cul-de-sacs on discussing, you know, whether certain individuals are, you know, right for a committee or not. Or, you know, you hear a lot of talk about whether we're talking about uh, Democrats or uh, Republican committee mm-hmm. chairs. And I, I think that's a an important analysis, but it's a secondary analysis to an individual's philosophy on running a committee, mm-hmm. first of all. And secondly, also on their actual you know, ideological center, mm-hmm. because I can, you know, just thinking back in recent history alone, I mean, how many conservative priorities uh, were stymied in the House? You know, I'm talking actually, you know, things that, uh, you know, say the Republican Party would call, um, you know, a priority legislation. Yeah. Things like taxpayer funded lobbying and, and Abs- bail reform and stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, some, of that, that's, some of that stuff would be actually <clears throat> uh, would go to one of the, you know, to a committee chaired by member of that party. Mm-hmm. And then it would still fail to, you know, to, to get wings. And so I, I think that that's an important analysis, but it kind of misses the point of, you know, it, working within an institution is a, it's its own, so it comes with its own set of rules. And I think it's a bit overly simplistic to reduce it thus. And, and written or unwritten, right, in terms mm-hmm. of the, the rules. Because, you know, some on the right have made um, an issue about, you know, appointing uh, Democrat chairs, right? Yeah. And there was one in the Senate. And so, um, but, but you know, to your point, it's, there's not always a guarantee that just because Republicans are in charge or because you, you have a Republican chair that the conservative priorities are going to get done. A- absolutely. And you, you mentioned, uh, you know, Dean Whitmire from the, in, from the Senate. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he's he's been in the Senate for as long as I've been alive. And um, I, I pointed out the other day that he's actually been chairing uh, criminal justice in the Senate for about half the time many of my staff have been alive, um, which, which is not the... You <laughs> it just know, makes you old. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, that's more of, not an indictment of him, but an indictment of me. Um, but, but, that, but that being said, it's also, you know, there's a, there's a value on institutional knowledge there, mm-hmm. um, institutional knowledge there as well. At the end of the day, I, I, I think the important thing is you take a look at what are important conservative priorities are they advancing or not? And looking at some of the ancillary characteristics, I, I think could be a bit of a distraction. But again, eye on the prize. If you have a conservative priority, is that moving? Is that gathering momentum? Is that getting to the other chamber with time for them to consider it as well? And we'll we'll find all that out here in the <clears throat> in the coming weeks. And obviously, as you said, coming up, we've got a very important uh, education committee hearing uh, mm-hmm. that we have. Is that the Senate? Yeah, it's Senate finance, but they're going to be doing Article 3 of the budget. Okay, got it. Okay, great. All right, well, um, let's keep our eye on the ball, and we will get into the hot topics of the week. We've got a couple things that we want to chat about. Um, this week, um, there were there was good news about Texas. There were, I think there was the, um, forget, oh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released uh, their job numbers for 2022, and Texas was the big winner. Texas um, had created the most jobs of any state in the country last year in 2022. Texas added 650,000 uh, jobs were created uh, in Texas last year, again making us the king of job creation, again making Texas the uh, the economic engine of this country. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I, I think, I mean, it, it, it goes to follow. I mean, there's so many, you know, it, we like to, especially some of the more um, 
I would say, uh, beard stroking amongst us, especially on our, you know, our economist pals, you know, our, our, our former colleague and, and current friend Vance Ginn, you know, is always one to really give a multifaceted explanation for why the Texas economy does as well as it does. But the thing is, it's even more simple than that. You know, so much of the economic growth that we've developed or that we've experienced is because when businesses look at Texas, either for relocation or, um, you know, a place expansion, to expansion. Ex- exactly. They're not looking at, well, they're definitely not looking at the allergen count around here. I think we can all say. <laughs> the but, but, stifling humidity and yeah, heat. Has, yeah, exactly. In, in the Houston <laughs> we, area. We would have got a million jobs. Yeah, no. ex- exactly. But, but you know, they're not, they're not looking at that. They're looking at, can, do I have predictable regulation? Do I have a predictable tax rate? Is there not an area of my balance sheet? I'll just go flying off the, <laughs> flying off the chart out of control. Can I plan and develop for success? Mm-hmm. And in so many states where, again, it's almost uh, fashionable, sorry, Jefferson, almost fashionable to dunk <laughs> on California, they can't say that. They can't say that. Look, they pass AB5, which basically completely recodifies and rearranges uh, an employee's relationship with their employer. It's obviously a sop to the unions. California did that? We, yeah, we, yeah. Don't have, we don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. People here, not only are they, not only do they you know, reject that outright. It's like, we don't even engage in those particular mm-hmm. conversations. The only time you see, you know, the, the typical union activism that you see so oftentimes in California, when you see it here, it's at a press conference and they're proposing something like, let's raise the minimum wage to a thousand dollars an hour. And so everyone can be rich <laughs> or, or something like that. And then that press conference ends and so too does the prospect of that legislation. Yeah. And so, I mean, just, you know, this week we've seen you know, press conference after press conference after press conference. And a lot of that is surrounding things that we want to talk about, but not things that, you know, there's a consensus on doing. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I just point out just simply because so it, it, it generates a lot of smoke, mm-hmm. um, but usually there's not a whole lot. So you've, you've presented more of the, you know, an, an academic formula for why the Texas miracle, right? Because we have educated workforce. We have, mm, you know, yeah. regulations and all that kind of stuff. I kind of want to spike the ball a little bit and be a little petty. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, we, we hear all the time, you know, we pass legislation. We pass, you know, gun rights legislation, right? Like constitutional carry or we have open carry here. Oh, it's going to be a wild west in Texas. You know, people are going to be shooting at each other from across Congress Avenue. Or we pass, you know, a- abortion restrictions. And everybody's like, oh, well, you know, it's going to be th- this cons- conservative hellhole or election integrity reforms or voter suppression, you know, we're going to have all these people. And why would you ever move to Texas? Why would, you know, everybody here is complaining about Texas and they want to leave and go somewhere else. Well, that's not true. It didn't happen. It's not happening at all. And and for a lot of reasons, um, you know, obviously some of the ones that you talk about, which is why the jobs are all being created here. But, it, you know, those jobs, those jobs can't be created if people aren't coming here in droves. And they're coming here from places like California and Illinois and New York, uh, places where they have stifling regulations. And like you're saying, and they, they have less freedom. Meanwhile, we are passing conservative legislation here, uh, and it is not preventing anybody, it's not discouraging anybody, uh, uh, from obviously, from moving here as we have, you know, a huge population growth in, in Texas. So, mm. anyway, it's just worth pointing out that, you know, that the left will criticize Texas for what it does in terms of its policies and its conservative leadership here, and clearly that is not the case. Absolutely. And, you know, me and my friends joke, uh, you know, usually over... Uh, some uh, brown leaf and brown liquor. Uh, we usually talk about how those are cigars, right? I'm just, it, just okay. I got it. Exactly. I, I was about, I was about to say that. Now that they can still do that in California. Okay. Um, but that being said, um, we you, you know we, we we joke about you know the, the, the central to the Texas experience is you know is it's 
basically dignity. You know, you, mm-hmm. you know, even people of modest means can live what we would consider a privileged life in many other places in this country to say nothing about elsewhere in this world. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly because of the low cost of living, the low cost of, you know, or the low regulation on doing what you want around here. And it's it's just it's just great to see. It's freedom. It's freedom. Absolutely. So we're we're competing with places like Florida and others for you know this kind of economic investment, and Texas seems to be winning. So uh, that's great. Uh, issue number two, and we'll t- talk about this. I you know I'm I've got some really hot takes here, so we may we may hopefully we can um, get through it all. But I saw this this. Um, this proposal, then this is from uh, Representative James Tallarico from Austin, um, and he's got a proposal uh, to raise teacher pay, mm-hmm. right? I mean, great. I mean, I, I'm certainly not opposed to teacher pay. He's proposing a $15,000 pay raise uh, for Texas teachers and a 25% pay raise for other school employees uh, using state surplus funds. Just as an idea, like, do we have any issue with, with, with raising teacher pay in Texas? In a vacuum, not at all. The only thing I'd point out is that that's not the business of the legislature. So not only wait, wait, wait. so so yeah. they can't do this. This isn't so the legislature's a lot, or the legislature can and has in the past and does currently in statute. And this is what Mr. Tallarico's bill seeks to alter: sets a a factored minimum pay for teachers. Hmm. And, and some folks bump up against it. Some folks do not. You know, it's the same thing where we talk about you know here in Texas the federal minimum wage. There are very especially in this this economy, hmm. there are very very, very few people in Texas making the federal minimum wage. And so it's, you know, this was another one of those press conferences we've seen this week. I'm all for giving teachers raises, but there needs to be some mechanism by sorting out quality in there, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we've discussed ad nauseum on this podcast, you know, uh, parental empowerment. I would love to have a system where any, whether it was uh, promulgated by the legislature or not, where we have a system where there's some sort of quality control, some sort of uh, quality assessment metrics on teachers, and those who who do basically categorize into a higher uh, pay tier outside of just they've been doing this job for X right. number of years, which is basically how the formula is currently constructed. Right. I think it. I think it brings up some troubling questions, frankly, um, about the current crop of teachers that we have uh, in, uh, in Texas. Um, a couple of things. You know, we have these three statistics that are just like punching us in the face every single day when we talk about um, education in Texas. One is that seventy percent of our fourth graders cannot do math at grade level. Two. 70% of our fourth graders cannot read at grade level. And three, if you cannot read or do math at grade level by the time you reach fourth grade, 95% of those kids will never catch up. So the quality of the product or the quality of the service, I hate to even use those terms, but the quality of the education <clears throat> uh, is poor. I mean, we're not, you know, if only 30% of our fourth graders are reading and, and doing math at grade level, um, you know, we have a real problem. So what does this say? We're just, you know, and, and again, I don't have a problem with giving teachers more money. I certainly don't know how, you know, teachers can survive to live in places like Austin and Houston and Dallas and our major metro areas mm-hmm. uh, on those Absolutely. kinds of salaries. So just, in, again, in a vacuum, I don't have a problem with giving them more salary. But what does this mean? I mean, this is, you know, our education system is not delivering the way it should. And so we're just going to give teachers $15,000 for what? Like, for what purpose? Like, is is the idea then they'll start being better teachers as a result of this higher salary? That brings up a troubling question. If you're a good teacher and you're not providing the best possible service, but suddenly if you get 
more money, now you're going to start providing a better service. Why weren't you providing it in the first place? So it, it, it you know, the question is, is a little troubling. If that's what they're, if that's what they're suggesting, that this fifteen thousand dollars will actually produce uh, better quality results. The other question is then, oh well, no, because there are good teachers out there. They just can't, you know, they afford to be a teacher. We need to pay them more. So what are you saying about the current crop of teachers who are there now? Because you're saying, well, they're not good. We're going to move them out. We're going to bring in teachers, you know, who who are good. So again, it's it's very troubling in terms of uh, uh, and you know if, if the point is to try and improve quality, um, I think it's very troubling and it brings up a lot of questions about our current crop of uh, our current education system. Yeah, and I, and I actually so I'm kind of somewhere in between on that, mostly because not not because I think that teachers don't deserve a raise or that there are no good teachers out there or bad teachers or even that the ones that are already doing that are not incentivized in one way, shape, or form uh, by money or would be more willing, say, to uh, invest more, you know, emotionally and internally into their classroom, into their students if they had that. I'm not even I'm not even saying that's not the case. The problem, though, being again, and I feel like we always come back to this because, you know, obviously we believe it, you know, wholeheartedly. We come back to this case where our education system is still designed is a in in a one size fits most thing. And then we kind of clean up around the edges with students with severe special needs and disabilities. So we're teaching to the lowest common denominator. Is that what you're kind of referencing? Well, not even because I mean, we have gifted tracks too, but like even like gifted tracks, like we approach that in a, with a fairly myopic focus too. Mm -hmm. And so we basically say you're either typical special needs or gifted. And then we have, you know, different schools have different programs for that. The problem, though, is is that even within those tiers, even within those tracks, students are so radically different from each other. They learn at different spaces or paces. They have different blind spots. They have different strengths. They have different opportunities for improvement. As long as we are promulgating a system where you need to do, where here's here comes the checklist. You need to do X. You need to do Y. You need to do Z. Oh, and then the feds now are jumping in and saying, oh, don't forget A, B, and C, because mm-hmm. we all know how the uh, Department of Education was so central to this nation's founding. Um, <laughs> ironically, we would know if education was at a better. We would know the truth if education was at a better level. But that being said, is there's no diversification, or no, or, or, let me put it this way, no organic diversification, right? right? And this is why school choice is so, so important. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a mechanism whereby there can be experimentation. And like, look, you can't have natural experimentation if you just have, say you have an inner city school and you have individuals there who are, you know, who are beyond the general population reading below level, you know, mm-hmm. at a greater percentage. There's no way, you know, we could throw money at that and they put, okay, now we're doing, you know, thumbs up for reading or whatever the program would be. But that might only address that might address a handful of them, but wouldn't address everybody. Why not unshackle the folks to be able to address that learning detriment in a way that's most appropriate for the specific student? Right. Now we feel that's best helmed by the parent, obviously. But even so, is we we just put so much so many shackles, so many handcuffs mm-hmm. on the actual education process itself. We're not getting any development, and then we're kind of and then the problem that this seeks to address is. Why are things so stagnant? And it's like, well, it's 
you know that's well, the, that's the feature not the bug in the way this system and, and I think you're hitting on the point which yeah. is which is we're trying to improve th- this is not a solution to right. to trying to improve the education system right well it's a solution like, to something it's well, <laughs> well I, yeah, I'm gonna get to that um, you know there, there are three problems that you know if you ask parents if you ask Texans what the biggest education issues are uh, in the state number one is school safety mm-hmm. number two is education quality and number three is sort of the indoctrination question you know the political agendas that are going on in the classroom this of course, doesn't solve anything about school safety. It doesn't solve anything about, you know, preventing political agendas from coming into the classroom. And then to the extent that this even kind of addresses uh, education quality, I've kind of, you know, spelled out the problems with with saying that. This doesn't really incentivize anybody to be a better uh, teacher Mm -hmm. necessarily. And so, you know, and to your point that the system, there's problems in the system uh, that this doesn't address. So I honestly, I mean, you know, I'll I'll just say it. I think this is a, a cynical play to try and destroy from the real debate that's going on about improving education, which is the one that you're talking about. Like, where do we create, you know, reforms in the system? I mean, is it accountability? Is it, you know, is it flexibility? Is it getting rid of the regulations and the rules? This is a distraction from people who are trying to have the real debate and the real solutions and propose the real solutions that are going to address these issues of school safety, education quality, and making sure that we're teaching real academics uh, in the class. Classroom. And so while I think teachers should get paid more, you know, I just, you know, my message is, you know, to the folks out there fighting on this, keep your eye on the ball um, and, and keep pushing uh, because I, I just, th- this isn't the solution that, that is going to fix our education system. And Dan's with the one that brought you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, we'll move on uh, to our final segment uh, of the show uh, where we go in depth on a particular issue. Um, this is, you know, obviously a very controversial issue. It's something that has come on, uh, I think, over the last couple of sessions. I think, you know, I, w- I was even guilty of, of kind of relegating this to kind of being a fringe issue uh, over the last couple of sessions, but obviously there's been done a, a ton of research. There's been, a, you know, a lot of, of things have come to light on this issue of people who are promoting and pushing the gender modification of minors, um, and Texas is, is poised to act to prevent it. Um, so uh, would you go through, I mean, I don't know if you know, but would you go through maybe some of the legislative proposals? Um, that are you know that are out there. <clears throat> yeah, I can I can speak generally on ideas simply because we haven't seen yet uh, something hit the hopper. Obviously, there's still plenty of time, but I do know that there is a decent amount of animation on this issue for the reasons that you mentioned. And 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 simply put, is this has been an area that had been regular that had been roughly unshackled from. Uh, kind of the general practice of medicine as we've as, as we've seen it before, and you know, obviously, Dr. Quentin Van Meter, who we had, um, who we've had uh, at our policy orientation prior to. Shameless plug. Uh, I have another podcast. Uh, it's just an audio <laughs> podcast. It's on Apple Podcasts and all those places. It's called Brian's Breakdown. I did a 45-minute interview with Dr. Quentin Van Meter. He is a is a pediatric endocrinologist, which is just a fancy term for a guy who studies hormonal um, problems in children. Uh, so it's a 45-minute podcast, and he spells it all out. So I would uh, highly recommend that. So. I was about to say, and I'd <laughs> probably do poorly to hold a candle to that, but, but, but essentially, given the reader digest version is essentially you know if you look at the juxtaposition of where you know gender and mental health come because we haven't had issues of, of gender dysphoria as a as a clinical thing you know prior to you know a little bit before our lifetimes right and essentially that what was seen as kind of a a fringe issue in the mental health space as kind of 
taken on a life of its own in this hyper-politicized medical environment that we have. Now, I I do have to highlight that this is not one of this. This isn't, uh, you know, settled science. Um, by any means, there is a, an activist group within the medical community that considers it such, uh, but the larger medical community does not. And it really has been advancing what we would consider to be very uh, contra-Hippocratic oath practices that are going on on uh, children who are unable to uh, give or withhold consent, right? Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, we see this situation crop up. We were on the sidelines here for the longest time, mostly because this would be considered a quintessential social issue. And we, believe me, we got like we've discussed already, there's plenty of other issues that, that, that bear addressing. But then we start hearing some of the some of the solutions. And those solutions in, uh, included usually uh, using uh, child protective services in order to intercede in some of these uh, you know, cases gone awry. Mm-hmm. Which, and, and I, I like comp- taking the kids away from the parents. And I completely <laughs> understand that impulse. The only the problem being, though, is our child protective services are not exactly doing well. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, our, our colleague Andrew Brown has been beating this drum for, you know, most of his professional career. We are unable to care for the kids the state needs to care for, let alone this whole new cohort. So that's mm-hmm. almost as much of a non-starter as can be. But that being said. There are still people that wish to to address it. So, what mechanism can you address it through? Right. And the way I the way I think a lot of this is going to go is simply a, a prohibition on the practice itself when visited upon minors. So, whether we're talking about puberty blockers, whether we're talking about the actual surgical intervention, which, you know, of course they say though that doesn't happen on children, then eight examples come out of, of you know pl- uh, places doing it. Not only that, but receiving state funds. Um, and that's just, you know, not, again, not consonant with the, the state of the medical science. In fact, if you look at these countries that have already gone down this path, the the, the Western and Northern European countries, mm-hmm. a lot of them now are walking back mm-hmm. because they see it's irreversible. They see that it's um, that can have all sorts of tangential side effects problems as well. And that to do so to a child who, again, even when their parents, let me let me. Talk about their parents, though, because the, the, the view and what really animated folks saying, well, what we need to do is we need to take them. We need to put them in CPS and lock up the parents. So take the kids away from the parents, it, put the parents in jail. The and I don't need to tell you this, Brian, if you're a parent and you see your child suffering, you will do absolutely anything. And, you know, even if that means compromising some, some beliefs you may have had, if you'd move heaven and earth to make that suffering stop. And that's where a lot of these parents are. They don't. It's not that they are, you know, some left-wing gender crusaders who just want to, you know. Unfortunately, and, there are some. That oh, are there like are that, definitely for sure. So we need to be but, careful, you know, that but, some but, parents are, in fact, uh, absolutely. Though I'd, I though I'd say I'd say most parents. I think the influence that's kind of pushing a lot of individuals, uh, a lot of children down this path, mm-hmm. it's coming less from inside the home and more from inside the schools and other so, another form of uh, the corrupt office. institutions. But yeah. that being said, is I understand that impulse. And so turning a blind eye to the suffering would be wrong. What we need to be doing is addressing some of these things. And one of the big things is when you, when they talk about this is like, oh, well, this population has uh, X, X greater of a percentage for you know attempting suicide and things like mm-hmm. that. 
those are com those are comorbid functions. Those are not causal functions, right? And so one of the things that we need to be talking about is whatever underlying mental illness, whether severe or acute, we're addressing that right up front. Where there are abilities for that to get fixed, because otherwise, if we're just reifying the gender side, and like if an adult wishes to go through this procedure, that you know more power to them. But again, a child cannot give or withhold consent, and we're following bad science that's pursuant more to ideology in order to empower this. That needs to stop. Two things to follow up on that. You know, Quentin Van Meter, again, listen to the podcast. It's fascinating. It's riveting. I usually do only about 15 minutes, and we just kept going for like 45 minutes because it was so fascinating. He had so much good information. One of the big takeaways I got from that interview was he said, you know, gender dysphoria is real. No one's saying gender dysphoria is absolutely. not real. It is absolutely a real thing. It is rare, but it is a real thing. And the solution, the vast majority of the time, the solution is puberty. If you can get a child through puberty and they can get over the dysphoria and their body will tell them who they are and what they and what they really are and all of that. Look, if they decide as an adult at that point, after they get through puberty to decide mm -hmm. to do whatever they want to do with their own body, that's fine. But let's let the child get through puberty and there's counseling and other ways that we can we yeah. can do that to help the child and the parents. So Absolutely. <clears throat> very important on that. Um, also, you mentioned Andrew Brown has done the research on this. We, we published a research paper, <clears throat> um, I guess it was last before last summer uh, last year getting ready for this issue so. and the real takeaways uh, for me on that which I want to share with with our audience um, you know number one we, we looked at all this you mentioned you know what's going on in Europe and what's going on here uh, in the country there is no conclusive evidence that these hormone therapies that the the puberty blockers and then certainly these irreversible surgeries there's no conclusive evidence at all that 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 uh, shows that it actually helps the dysphoria mm -hmm. right like think about I mean the, the, if the child has dysphoria and you're going through and, and your your solution is these things, you would think that it would, I mean, that, that the point would be to alleviate the dysphoria. There's no evidence that any of these things actually help the patient get through the dysphoria. So that's number one. There is significant evidence, of course, that these the, the puberty blockers and all of that do physically and emotionally harm the children. And you mentioned, you know, suicide rates. People who actually transition have very high uh, suicide rates. So we do have no evidence that this actually helps. We have lots of evidence that it actually hurts. And so without conclusive evidence that there, you know, that these that these things are working, doctors are effectively experimenting on children. And that's really what this is. Uh, you know, you mentioned the parents. And so we, we do have solutions and we want to, you know, to your point about, you know, you have scared parents who are just looking for solutions. That's why, you know, I think our, our legislative or our, you know, um, our solutions, our policy solutions are to try and get parents and kids through and into, you know, some kind of counseling so that they yeah. can get uh, discussions. But, um, you know, and, and professional counseling is another takeaway from the research. Professional counseling has, it has been a proven alternative that does, in fact, help kids overcome the dysphoria. So it actually is a solution to the problem. Yeah, and, and this, I mean, this is, it's a, this is a heartbreaking area to discuss, too. Um, and I, I think that, you know, again, so much of our politics nowadays is we want to we retreat to our camps and, you know, put on the, the, you know, the red team shirt or the blue team shirt mm -hmm. and then, you know, run our playbook accordingly. And this is one where, where you know, lives are literally at stake. And, mm -hmm. you know, getting it wrong on the front end, it has a lot of cascading problems. So this is one of the solutions yeah. where love is, you know, loving your opponent, uh, you know, your ideological opponent is, is the only way out. You know, this is not something where, you know, 
we want this tax rate, they want that tax rate, and we're going to beat each other over the head. This, this is real. These are real people. So no announcements have been made as of this morning mm-hmm. um, uh, whenever we were talking about this issue, but we do believe that legislation is poised to be released fairly soon, mm-hmm. uh, and this will be an issue that will be taken up in both the House and the Senate um, uh, and, and, and pursued uh, through the various committees. So we will keep an eye on that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, that's it for this episode. We really enjoyed talking about all these issues. Um, again, we would love to have your feedback. You can get us out in the Twitterverse, um, me at Real Phil, and you can get Derek at Cohen at TPPF. Also, another reminder, next week's show, very exciting. Our very first guest uh, ever on the show is going to be uh, former Congresswoman Myra Flores. She's going to have lots to say about all the topics of the day, so we're really looking forward to that. Uh, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. As always, uh, in the words of Sam Houston, do good and suffer the consequences.